There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Good morning, afternoon, evening, night, or middle of the night to you. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 121. The Nerdist Podcast is going on the road. Well, we're going to take a plane and then we'll be on a road where you live, maybe, if you happen to live in New York on October 14th. The 1030 show is sold out of the Nerdist Podcast live at the Gramercy Theater, but we are going to add an earlier show, so uh, stick around for details for that in the coming days. And also, the Nerdist Podcast live will be at the Aladdin Theater in Portland on October 22nd. Also, see Matt Smith! On a television show that's not Doctor Who, our television show, the Nerdist television show, on September 24th on BBC America at 10, 9 central after Doctor Who. Uh, He'll be on with Mr. Craig Ferguson, so it'll be myself, Matt Myra, Craig Ferguson, Matt Smith, and then Mike Furman is the one-man band, so please watch that show. A lot of fun nerds came out. They dressed up in TARDISes, and they dressed up like Fraggles, and it was insane. Uh, so please, please, please watch that show on September 24th on BBC America. Information for that TV show and the live shows I mentioned earlier are at, of course, Nerdist.com, which may be getting a refresh soon. You don't maybe care about that if you just listen to podcasts, but there's a whole worldwide web out there for you. Hey, I'd like to thank almost to an uncomfortable degree, GoToMeeting.com for being this week's sponsor on the Nerdist Podcast. GoToMeeting is video conferencing software. Uh, it's really hard to get people in one room together to have meetings, or if you have a band, or anything else you might need to get together for. So now all you need is an internet connection, and GoToMeeting will video conference everyone. It's easy for you and your attendees. Everyone's literally on the same page in seconds. It makes conference calls so much more effective when you can see people's faces to see if they're listening to you, or you can tell if they're lying and trying to steal from you. Collaborate, have meetings, share documents, share files, whatever you need, weekly staff status updates, whatever your business is, or, or whatever your pleasure may be with video conferencing. Sign up today for a free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Have all the meetings you want for one low flat rate. That's GoToMeeting.com. Click the Try It Free button and enter the promo code NERDIST. And now I'm going to stop talking about non-Sir Patrick Stewart-related things because he was amazing. I had never met him before. I didn't know what to expect. I was nervous, but he was wonderful. So warm and an incredible storyteller. Uh, his son Daniel was great, too. He was up there on the panel with us. Uh, there were 2,000 super kick-ass nerds in the audience excited to be there, and we just had a, a nice time. It was fun, so I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Everyone needs more Sir Patrick Stewart in their life, so think of me as your Sir Patrick Stewart dealer. Yeah. First taste is free. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello, 
introduce you to the reason that you came out today to Wizard World Chicago. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Patrick Stewart and Daniel Stewart. Hi guys, sure. Sit, sit here, I'll sit here. Welcome. How are you guys doing? Good. We're, uh, we're doing great. It's rare that we are, uh, have the opportunity to be a double act, so um, <laughs> you are very privileged to see something <laughs> unusual. This is an insane, amazing turnout. Uh, just really quickly, you told a phenomenal story backstage. We were talking about traveling and being tired, and you said, yeah, I kind of fell asleep during a shot uh, shooting Star Trek once. I thought that was an awesome story. You'd like me to repeat that? Would you mind? <laughs> it's pretty sweet. Okay. Well, you know, we, um, there are tougher jobs than filming a television series. Uh, but the hours on Next Generation, well, oh, you know, here's the problem. The people over there can't see me. Um, All right, hang on. I can fix can that. Can we move your desk back a little bit? Yes, of course. I brought this desk from home. I thought it would be a cool yeah. idea. <laughs> and he deliberately put it there. Where, there you go. Expelliarmuth! Gone. <laughs> well, um, the hours were often long, especially towards the end of the week. And there was one night when I might have been the last actor working, and everyone had changed or gone home, and I was shooting a close-up uh, on me having a conversation with some alien on the view screen. And uh, this alien had a long speech to make. Um, and because when we did those shots, there was never anybody there. I mean, all there was was a, uh, a lamp bracket with a, a black circle with a white cross on it, and that was your eye line. And the lines of the other character were read in for us by our script supervisor, uh, a wonderful man called Cosmo Genovese. And Cosmo Genovese never missed a single day of work in seven years, wow. which is incredible. He was not a young man either. But Cosmo would read in all those lines of characters who, for whatever reason, couldn't be there. And he always threw himself into the characterization of these parts, which was entertaining for everybody. But this night, he was, in, he was tired too, I guess, and he was just standing to one side reading from the script and... I was uh, focused on the black dot, and it was a big, tight close-up like this, and this is somewhere on film in the vaults of Paramount Pictures, <laughs> but halfway through this alien speech, I went... <laughs> <laughs> and, um, well, they had to shoot the scene again, but... Uh, I don't know why, I think that's quite a good reading, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Poor well, Cosmo must have thought, like, I'm a terrible actor. Yeah. The thing is, once you've spoken to one alien, you've spoken to them all. You know? <laughs> what, what do they expect from you? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, they want to come and invade our planet. They've got to expect you to fall asleep while they're on screen. <laughs> but um, I, I think you're all going to be uh, here with LeVar Burton at Woo! 4 o'clock. Yeah. Okay, no, 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 don't get too excited. <laughs> um... 
Although, if you want to ask LeVar Burton a question later, <laughs> you ask him about what I thought about his dance moves last night. What? <laughs> Where was this happening? Boys Town. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, Don't it was, tell it was, in a, it was in a blues club here in Chicago. But uh, there, is, there is, in one of the episodes... I'm going to shut up in a minute, Dan. No, That's you your carry daughter. on. You're doing great. Um, thank you very much. There's nothing like praise from your son. Is there? <laughs> to give you encouragement. Um, LeVar, as some of you may remember, for a period of time wore a visor, as it was called. Well, you couldn't see his eyes. And back in the old days when LeVar used to sit at Ops, I think it was Ops, um, they had these curvy chairs and you could sit back and this is how people sat. So we started a scene, action, and we began the scene and it came to LeVar's line and there was silence. <laughs> Okay. okay, so we started the scene again, very quietly, action. And we played the whole scene, and someone else said Lavoie's line for him, and he slept unknowingly all the way through. <laughs> you talk about dancing, but you had some pretty sweet dance. What, what, what was, how did the Alphabet Song video come to be? Have you seen that? Have you seen it online? You mean, oh, Where you're on the bridge, one. and you're singing the Alphabet? You know? Hey, you're adorable. Yes. Well, you know, that was a private gift. The internet is full of those. Yeah. <laughs> for Gene Roddenberry, for his birthday. Um, my wife, Dan's mother, was, uh, is a choreographer, terrific choreographer, and she came in uh, one afternoon during the lunch break, and she choreographed that whole number. Uh, have you seen this thing, some of you? Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And I sang it as a gift for uh, Gene Roddenberry, and we presented him with the tape. Then some idiot went and put piano accompaniment on it <laughs> in a different key from the key I was singing in. Oh. But, of course, nobody thinks the pianist is in the wrong key. They think it's me. Um, so if you have it, turn the sound... Well, you can't turn the sound off, then you don't hear me singing, but... Uh, um, yeah, well, you know, I had excellent choreography. That's why it worked. And that's why Dan is such a good dancer, because his mother was a choreographer. Dan, you, you, got, to, you got to do you did a Star Trek episode? I did, was yeah. It, was it fun? Did you, what was that experience like? It was that? terrifying, actually, yeah. As, uh, I was only about a year out of drama school and had never actually been on camera before. I like to think that it doesn't show, but I'm not sure. Um, and on top of that, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with being on that show. It really is. And uh, it's, it's a huge honor, and you want to be able to, to be good. But uh, having grown up with all those guys, I mean, not just Brent and LeVar and Jonathan and the gang, but also the crew, because as Dad says, they, they were there every day for seven years, and they were a pretty amazing bunch of guys. So you couldn't have had a more supportive environment to do your first... TV job. It was incredible. Do you? Because you both obviously have huge theater backgrounds, and you didn't you actually leave the Royal Shakespeare Company to go shoot Star Trek? Not the Royal Shakespeare Company. No. Um, what happened was I had, in fact, uh, after something like 14 years, 
of working steadily with the company, I had left to try to get some TV and film work. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't going too well. And then I got offered a job at the National Theatre, the Royal National Theatre in London, the only time they've ever offered me a job. I did that job. And I had um, a break in it, and I went to do some lecturing and teaching in Southern California and stayed with a friend of mine uh, who was a, an English professor at UCLA. And um, one night he said, look, uh, do me a favor. I'm giving a public lecture on campus in Royce Hall. And I've asked a friend of mine, an actress, would you two of you come in and illustrate the lecture by reading extracts from the plays I'm talking about? And he said, there's $100 in it for you. All right. Um, <laughs> sweet. Hey. Hey. Yeah. Very sweet. Totally sweet. <laughs> and uh, I did that, and of course, unknown to me, signed up for the course of public lectures was a man called Robert Justman, who was not only one of the original producers of the original classic Star Trek, but had been brought in to help launch this new version of Star Trek. And he claims, and he's an honest man, I think, that halfway through this evening, he turned to his wife and said, we found the captain. But it took six months and three, four auditions and meetings. I met Gene Roddenberry the next morning. They called up right away, and I went to see Gene in his little house up in the Hollywood Hills. Um, I remember a lot of orange shagpile carpet. Um, that went in a year or so. Uh, and uh, he, although he was very civil, he said after I had left, absolutely no way. This is not the man I want to have in my new series. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Why? What was his reasoning? Uh, a bald, middle-aged English Shakespearean. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I think, and I think this is what comes across when people see you uh, as, as Captain Picard, that there's so much parallel between sci-fi fantasy and Shakespeare. I mean, it's like... It's this kind of like melodramatic, oh, yeah. almost like social allegory. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, it, it made sense to me, too. <laughs> uh, How well, did you it, win him over? I, I mean, I, I didn't. I had nothing to do with it at all. Um, he was, I'm told, gradually worn down by Robert Justman and the casting department, the, the wonderful... Um, Junie Lowry. Junie Lowry, whose name you will see everywhere. Great, great casting director and cast... I think every episode of Star Trek. I think she did. Um, and when he came on board, because he was not on board at the beginning, the man who became the executive producer for Star Trek, uh, Rick Berman. Mm -hmm. And Rick became a great champion of mine, so he joined with Robert Justman. And I think they just wore Gene down. So he <laughs> cast me just to shut them up. <laughs> well, as I said to you backstage, I've, I've been... I've been friends with Will Wheaton since he was doing Star Trek, and he sends his love to you uh, in, in a very non-threatening way. And um, <laughs> it's all hugs. Uh, but but Will, Will, said, Will said at one time, that I didn't realize how, like, it, he told me that you were, you were hilarious. And I've seen that over the years since then, but at the time we were teenagers, I was like, really? Patrick Stewart's hilarious? And he, said, he told me the story where you guys were on the bridge and you would say stuff like, uh, Ensign Crusher set a course for Rigel III, and in Grecian times, a, young, a general would take a young boy out on campaign. <laughs> no. Now you know what it was like growing up in that house. <laughs> well, um, there's more to that. 
Um, uh, and uh, I mean, here, Dan can support me in this. Um, <clears throat> Maybe. I, uh, <clears throat> I used not to have much of a sense of humor. Um, I'm a Yorkshireman, we're pretty kind of doer, you know? Not as doer as the Scots, but doer enough. Um, we have a saying in uh, Yorkshire, where I come from, in the West Riding. Uh, you probably won't understand it, because it's kind of in dialect, but I'll say it slowly. <clears throat> Ear all, see all, say note, say nothing. Ate all, sup all, pay note. And if ever that does out for note, do it for this end. If ever you do something for nothing, do it for yourself. That's the principles that I grew up with, you see. Um, so I didn't have much of a sense of humor, did I, Dan, when you were growing up? No. <laughs> but I ha but you, you have, well, you've since cultivated it because I think your episode of Extras is probably one of the greatest pieces of television. Yeah. How did, you, how did you get involved with Ricky Gervais? I, I, I don't understand the connection between having a sense of humor and the extras interview. <laughs> oh, right. No, you're right. I'm sorry. I was, I was new thought. You, you thought that was funny? No, 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 no. I was very serious. It was very serious. <laughs> uh, um, no, I'm going to finish the funny thing on Star Trek first. Oh, yes. Okay, because um, <clears throat> I, the first season, I was, forgive me, I was a pain in the butt. Um, uh, I, apart from the fact, like, like Dan, actually, because I understand exactly what Dan's saying, I spent the first season terrified. Uh, I'd never done that kind of work before. I had never been that perpetually tired in my life before. I'd never had to learn so many lines so quickly and forget them before. And so, for me, it was all about the work. And I thought that the rest of the cast fooled around too much. Okay. And one day, quite early on, I called them all together and I said, listen, uh, things have got to change around here. I could do this because I was the captain and I was also <laughs> a lot older. You remember this style in me, don't you, Dan? Very well. Yeah. It's um, etched indelibly on my brain <laughs> and my backside. Oh, it's not, no, I was not a violent father. I had a violent father. Um, and uh, I said, it's, 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 it's got to stop. You know, we, we, you, you, what you don't understand while you're fooling around, that there are people here who are here 12 hours a day, and they can't fool around, and if they were to fool around, you'd get angry with them. No, we have got to be much more serious and get through the work. And they're all looking at me like, who is this guy? You know? And I remember Denise Crosby, of course, who didn't stay in the series for long, saying, but Patrick, you know, we've got to have some fun. And I said, you are not here to have fun. <laughs> How did that go over? So, uh, not well. I think they just, they may just have laughed. Anyway, the fact of the matter is that during that first season, and it's certainly the second season, I discovered for the first time in my life it was possible to work very hard, do the best work you could, and have fun at the same time. And those guys, Jonathan, Brent, LeVar, Michael, Gates, Marina, they gave me a sense of humor, which I didn't know existed. And um, I became, I'd like to think, the silliest person in the, on the Enterprise. 
Did they, did they have to sit you down at season six and be like, Patrick, some people are here to work? I know, I know, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, Michael Dorn used to love saying that. Excuse me, Patrick, excuse me. I thought we were here to work. And, um, um, now, my, my favorite bit of fun, and, we, and it's right, we used to, when we rehearsed, we wouldn't rehearse the scene that we were supposed to film. We would make up other dialogue, like the dialogue you described. But my favorite moment would always be when there was any peril, which was pretty much, you know, <laughs> every 15 minutes. Um, you know, something scary happened. I would leap into Jonathan Frake's arms and, and scream, we're all gonna die, we're all gonna die. And, um, Oh, I, that is not on the internet anywhere? That's amazing. That has got to exist somewhere. <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, it's true. I was in the supermarket in, in uh, southeast London, where I live, and my, my cell phone rang, and I answered it, and a voice said, uh, Hi, this is Ricky Gervais. And I went, yeah, 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 because I have a good friend who does impersonations of everybody. Uh, an actor called John Light, brilliant impersonations, and uh, I thought it was John fooling around with me. And he said, uh, no, 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 it's, it's, it's Ricky. And then he said, listen, I'm doing this show, and I've got this idea, and uh, how do you feel, would you like to do it? I haven't got a script, but you know, we'll, um, and so he wrote, every single word in that scene is scripted. There was not a word improvised, it was all scripted and acted, you know. How was it, uh, what, what, was the, what was the tone on that set? On the extra <laughs> Man. Well, again, I was scared because I'd never done comedy like that before, but I'd watched Ricky's show, The Office, and I got the style, that, that completely serious mm -hmm. uh, style that all of them used, and I thought that's maybe the way I should go with this, and uh, I thought the script was brilliantly funny, and, and uh, the problem was Ricky, because he laughs all the time. Oh, he does? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it, fact, it is a loud, bellowy laugh. It is, yeah, yeah. He's impossible. Uh, and uh, everything, every time I open my mouth, he just shrieks with laughter. And Steve Merchant, his, his partner, producer and writing partner, made him leave the set. And we did some of my close-ups without Ricky there. Really? Mm. Did you fall asleep? <laughs> Only once. <laughs> I also, just as a side note, just kind of nerding out a little bit, I loved you in L.A. Story, too. I thought that was such a great... You guys, some of the kids maybe didn't see L.A. Story, but it's an awesome movie. I want the fish. You cannot have the fish. Just to remind you of what you said in that movie, uh, if I can for a second. You How think with a bank balance like yours, you can have the duck? <laughs> you can have a piece of bread and a salad. That's so awesome! Oh my god, I can't even, I mean, it's like, I can't. I'm glad I wore a diaper, that's all, I'm just glad. American Dad, yeah, so uh, you've been working with Seth MacFarlane. Yep, I, I, I recorded six new episodes last week in L.A. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, only I, there was one big Bullock episode, but a lot of little bits and pieces, you know? Uh, there's a, uh, Stan has a birthday that everybody goes to and uh, things kind of get out of hand and it's <laughs> a lot of fun. Did you ever, I mean, you know, when you're, when you're, you're starting in the theater and like what, what career did you envision that you were going to have? 
did you did you ever think like someday I'll go into television, or did you like no, I'm just going to be a theater guy? What did what did you think? No, I, I just wanted to be on stage, and uh, I spent quite a few years just working in regional theater, provincial rep, and uh, w w when I mean I don't know how much this corresponds with your experience, Dan, but um, when I left drama school, it seemed to me every other student in my year had got an agent or a job or a manager or something. And I had nothing and I went home to my parents' house and I signed on the dole for unemployment. Mm -hmm. And I literally thought my career was over before it had begun because nobody was interested in employing me. They, nobody wanted, after the school shows, I was, uh, it was awful. And, um, and then out of the blue, about, after about three weeks, I got a phone call offering me a job as a, an assistant stage manager uh, an occasional acting roles in a weekly rep where we did a new play every Monday night, which was, um, in a way, just what I needed, really, yeah. something like that. What happened to you, Dan? Um, yeah, all right, I'm still here. No, I'm not, <laughs> oh. no, I'm not asking what's happening to you now. Right. I was curious to know what happened to you. Uh, what happened at the end of your four years? Dan, Dan went to school here in the United States. Uh, well, it was Los Angeles, which, you know, is its whole own thing. I mean, there's no place like it at all, and it, and it has its own set of rules. Mine, you know this. I lived like there for, like, 20 years. It's not a real place. It's, it's not a real place. No. <laughs> and, and they have a really odd way of doing things, and uh, it's, it's kind of weird. I was, the big thing in L.A., I mean, you guys know this, too. The big thing in L.A. is they don't really know what to do with you unless you're typecast. You know, if you're a thing, they can, I, oh yeah, you're that guy, you do this. So the, all the auditions I did when I first came out of drama school, because I still had a little bit of hair, I was a bit geeky, I wore little round glasses. I was constantly, and you've seen this guy in endless movies. I was always the guy on the bad guy's team who was the tech guy, and he was usually at a keyboard sort of going. I think you're looking at about 2,000 of that. <laughs> These aren't, these aren't bad guys. These are all good guys. But he always had the line where he'd be like, we're almost in. <laughs> and, and that was pretty much me in various different ways of going, I'm almost in. And uh, so that was that. That's, that's really good. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. I was, I, I'd like to say I was very good at it by the time I left. Um, are you still based in Los Angeles, Dan? No, uh, I actually just moved back to the UK where I've been living in New York for the last 14 years. Mm -hmm. um, theater is very much still my thing and um, uh, I, I, I love it and we, we do share the common, uh, the common joy of being on a stage in front of a living audience, you know, and, ha and having that feedback every night is, is, there's nothing like it in the world. So really for that, you're kind of SOL in Los Angeles, if you want to try that. Yeah, there's no theater culture really in Los Angeles. There's a lot of pretentiousness connected by traffic. Right. <laughs> this is exactly right. And um, that, that can get boring after a while. Yeah. Uh, whereas New York and London, that's very much sort of what you do. And New York's great also because there's some great TV shows that get done there and films as well. So I enjoyed it very much. But it was sort of after 14 years, it was sort of time to come home, I think. Have you guys done plays together? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's uh, most recently? What was the last thing we did? W was it the Johnson? I think it was, yeah. yeah. We, did a, uh, <laughs> we did a very weird play together. 
at the West Yorkshire Playhouse in Leeds in the north of England. A fantastic play, but freaking nuts. I mean, it was... Sorry, fricking. <laughs> fricking isn't a bad word. We're allowed that. Fricking's okay. I'm, I'm really sorry. I apologize. <laughs> Man, you control your son's language? I mean, I what the I hell? Look at the size of him. I can't control anything about him. Um, yeah, I won't get my pocket money for that. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be fine. Um, uh, Speaking uh, of which. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. What, what did I do? Nothing is right. <laughs> we were talking about the last play we did together, I think. Yep, was the question. we were. Uh, a fantastic play uh, by an incredible British writer called J.B. Priestley. And the play starts with a man dying and uh, called Johnson. And that's what um, Patrick was doing. And, and it's a journey through to him basically moving on. And it's beautiful, and it's incredibly, uh, it's, a, it's, it's an, an amazing play, but it's very weird. And the middle section is sort of a purgatory hell thing set in a casino. And um, that was really odd. Um, I, I played a gorilla in that particular scene. You played a was, gorilla? I was a gorilla. I was a card-dealing gorilla. I was... the. The dead man, ha it's, I told you it was weird. The dead man has, has a sort of alter ego of, called the figure that follows him all the way through and helps him actually move on and accept that he's died and move on. And that's what I played. But he, he has all these different personas that keep popping out mm. at various points in the play, and one of which was a card-dealing gorilla. I want this car for this price. No, poop hits you in the face. Like, I don't know how that... I want to just because we I want to save a few minutes for audience questions. So if you have some questions, line up at the microphone, and we have a few minutes uh, to ask a couple audience questions. Uh, oh my! Oh! Oh! One at a time. One at a time. There we go. No, we'll never get to all the questions, uh, but but we can at least we can at least get a few. Um, obviously, uh, your experience as uh, Dr. Charles Xavier. Like, how is that? Uh, how did how did that sort of come to fruition, and and how how has that experience been for you? Oh. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry about this, but I I'm not a comic book fan. I, I don't really know anything about comic books at all. And I'd done a film for the director, Richard Donner, um, and, uh, uh, called Conspiracy Theory with uh, um, uh, Mel Gibson and uh, Julia... Um, uh, uh, Roberts. Roberts. <laughs> I, I've had to erase it because I am the man who hit Julia Roberts across the face and knocked her across the room, for which America has never forgiven me. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, she was fabulous, fabulous, wonderful to work with. And um, so I got a call. I was doing ADR at Warner Brothers, and I got a note saying, would I go to the Donner's office and, and uh, ask for Lauren Shula Donner, who is uh, Dick's wife and producing partner, and I found the office, and I knocked on the door, and she said, come in, and I opened the door, and she picked something up off the table and held, just held it up, like this. And I went across the other room, and I said, what am I doing on the front of a comic book? <laughs> and she said, exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. I have to say, though, at this point, a, a little dose of reality is I, I sort of feel that I should get some credit for him doing it at all yeah. because there was this conversation with myself and my stepmom and my dad where it went something like this. 
I'm not doing that. Uh, comic books? I don't do comic books. Rubbish. Uh, to which we said something like, you're nuts. That's crazy. Do it. You didn't want to do it. You admit it. No, I didn't. And I had lunch with Brian Singer, uh, the director. And, uh, and I admired him as a director immensely. I'd seen all of his work. And, uh, but I said, look, I, I already have one albatross around my neck, and it's called Jean-Luc Picard. I don't want to have a second one. You know, because there is, you know, there is a sort of career downside, and, and I would change nothing in my life, nothing. But, um, you know, I have had, I've sat in a movie director's office, and he said to me, you're a terrific actor. I really admire you. You'd be great for this role, but why would I want Jean-Luc Picard in my movie? Oh, someone said that to your face? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a knight now. You should run him through with a broadsword. Oh, I know. It's Ian McKellen. It's true. Um, yeah, I, I remember vividly that. that uh, Dan wising me up about X-Men and Marvel Comics and what it all meant and how huge the genre was and all of that. And, uh, and, and Brian Singer taught me into it. Let's take a couple audience questions really quickly before we uh, wrap up the panel. Uh, what is your name, ma'am? My name is Stephanie. Hi. What's your question? Um, in regards to your prolific work with classic literature, such as Shakespeare and Moby Dick, what truths or aspects have you learned about yourself by performing roles that have stood the test of time? Um, I think, the, uh, I think you've uh, gone over the excessive baggage uh, for the weight of that question. She wants to know, through all of the work that you've done, essentially, what truths, uh, what have you learned about yourself uh, through your craft, I think was ultimately uh, the Well, one most important thing, which happened only about 20 years ago, I've been an actor for 52 years now, was um, to n not to be afraid. Because I was fearful for years and years and years. We, Dan and I have talked a lot about this. Um, I was afraid of being myself. I was a great faker, but then a lot of English actors are. We fake brilliantly. Um, and then a, a series of things happened, jobs, directors I worked with, and I found that I could stop faking it and the sky didn't fall on my head. So getting rid of fear, and that's what I say to all acting students when I talk to them. It's the most important thing they have to free themselves of because they are not expressing themselves when they are afraid of being themselves. So I've learned that. And um, as for all those roles you mentioned, uh, what I learned 20, 25 years ago was that all of these people already exist inside me. It doesn't matter how unspeakable they are, how unpleasant. They are there, and you have to find all those elements internally. Do you think coming to grips with the fear was something that uh, you just gained from, uh, you know, as, as you aged, or do you, was, it, was it because of your work? No, it was just good, happy coincidence that I, I worked with two directors almost back to back who were saying to me the same thing. I mean, one of them I worked with who actually said to me, this was at the Young Vic in London in, a, in an American play, he said to me, stop, 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 stop. This is not the Royal Shakespeare Company. You can't bring those bad habits here. Oh, he wow. Damn. Snap. Uh, <laughs> do you Thank feel you. like you're... Okay, good. Excellent. Ne next question. Hello. Hello. I'm June Marsh, and my question is... Hello. If you were given the opportunity to be in King Lear, and the two roles to be filled were Lear and Kent, and you were going to be filling these with Ian McKellen, which would you choose? 
Did you catch that? Yeah, I did. Um, what do you think? Oh, I think I know what, what you could. Well, I, I mean, the fact is I'm probably too old to play Kent now. <laughs> I thought you, if you said Lear or Gloucester, it might make sense because uh, my best friend, who is an actor in England, um, uh, is two years older than me, and he is about to play Gloucester. Um, in fact, in the same theater where we did Johnson over Jordan in Leeds. Uh, Gloucester is a great role. Kent is a magnificent role. Um, I've been in the play once, and I played the Duke of Cornwall. The great thing about the Duke of Cornwall is that he gets killed before the interval, and you get to go home. <laughs> you remember, I used to come home like 9 o'clock at night that, instead that, of quarter to midnight. That actually is a rule, too. If you die before the interval, you get to go home. You don't have to Excellent. stay. Yeah, it is. That's wonderful. You'll never see actors who die before the interval take the curtain call. Thanks for um, you know, it's like there are all these kind of you know, rules and choices that you would never know about. For instance, there's a character of Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet who always wears a long friar's robe down to his ankles. Um, and uh, 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 I'm just trying to think what the choice is about that. Um, uh, Underdressing. Oh, no, it's a say. choice of uh, if you want to play Friar Lawrence or Mercutio. You get the choice of playing Mercutio and getting to go home before the interval, or playing Friar Lawrence and keeping your trousers on. <laughs> That's sometimes all it comes down to. <laughs> all right, great, thank you. Well, thank you. Next question. All right, well, I just want to ask about uh, what do you like? Which role do you like better, masterminds or the page master? Well, uh, page master, as I recall, was an animated movie. <laughs> Um, no, that was live action. What do you remember? I beg your pardon? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what, what Why are you screwing with Patrick Stewart, dude? <laughs> do you know how you would get ripped apart by all these people, like, like the friggin' Walking Dead? Yeah. I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take his photograph so I'll know him in future. <laughs> uh, You'll never ask a question in this town again. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I actually didn't hear the question. Would you re could you repeat the question? I said, uh, what, what would you say you like better doing, Mastermind or the Page Master? Which did I enjoy? Yeah. Well, I said, as I think I said, Page Master was an animated movie. So I was just a voice in that. But uh, uh, Masterminds, not only was I in, but I co-produced that movie as well. And we really, the writer and the director and myself, thought that we were making the next Home Alone. I thought we were going to be zillionaires out of this movie. And it opened in L.A. on Friday night and closed Sunday. <laughs> Two days. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I liked it as a child. It's my good movie. It's a good movie for me. Uh, so. You have redeemed yourself. Now sit down. A <laughs> couple more questions. Yes, what is your name, sir? Steve. Hey, Steve. What's your question? Uh, well, you zipped by this earlier, but... Uh, I'd like to say congratulations on your long overdue knighthood. Uh, is this a big deal to you? And uh, how, how, how does that process even work? And secondly, why is your son so much taller than you? Those are, those are all weird but fair questions. Yeah. Well, I think Dan should answer the last question, not me. I don't think that's true at all. I think if anyone should be answering that question, that should be you. 
Well, I um, wasn't there at the time. <laughs> um, uh, the thing is, I had a very deprived childhood. Uh, we had nothing to eat. Uh, we had very little fresh air to breathe. And uh, so I grew up stunted. Uh, Daniel, on the other hand, had uh, parents who fed him well, and he had exercise and clean, fresh air in Warwickshire, and, um, you know, and I used to hit him every time he slumped over. <laughs> um, but I didn't catch the first question. Oh, the first question was about being knighted. Like, what was the process like? And uh, oh, His first oh. hilarious question was, is it a big deal to you? Yeah. Oh, you know what I mean, knighted? Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Uh. Um, Thanks, well, Liz. Um, <laughs> I, I think his exact words were at the time when the Queen lowered the sword when she said, I make you a knight of the British realm. He said, uh, whatever. That's cool, man. That's all right. Um, first of all, I... I Forgive me, but I don't agree with you, sir. I thought the timing of it was perfect. If it had happened any sooner, I would have felt like a fraud. I really do think it was perfect. And others have said what you said, but uh, that, that's, for me, not accurate. Um, yes, it's a great, great honor and distinction, and I'm really proud of it. And I know some actors have turned them down. Uh, I know one who turned uh, an item down three times. Who? Um, I can't say. Steve, it was Steve Gutenberg. Steve. Yeah, weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why he didn't want it. <laughs> Wasn't even from England. You're funny. Oh, you? thanks. Thank you. I can die now. Oh, my God, that was the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh, my God. That was awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I did one of those Q&A things in one of the Sunday papers recently. You know, the same, they ask people the same set of questions, and... And one of the questions is, how would you like to be remembered? And people give kind of very serious, you know, solemn answers. And, and I said, for being funny, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, because, I, I mean, Laurence Olivier said, um, there is far more satisfaction to be got out of making an audience laugh than making them weep. And I increasingly, as I get older, come to feel that is true. I love to hear the sound of a live audience laughing, which you, of course, are very familiar with. Uh, well, sometimes, but not all the time, uh, sadly. Uh, thank you. Is your question sufficiently? Okay, great. And uh, I we think have... this probably has to be... This the, is the last question. Yes, sir. What is, what is your question? Oh, this better be good. Um, the pressure's on now, man. Actually, it's nothing near as poignant, but um, when you did Robin Hood Men in Tights, what was it like working with personalities like Mel Brooks and Carrie Elwes? Yes, what was it like working with Mel Brooks for Robin Hood Men in Tights? Uh, uh, I, was only, I did about six days' work on that, and I simply remember starting laughing at about six o'clock in the morning and, and not stopping until they called that's a wrap at the end of the day. Um, I, I mean, it wasn't just Mel, but there were some very funny people in that movie. And um, I don't know how the movie get, I don't know how his movies get made. <laughs> because, you know, and... And, and there's, you know, unlike uh, Ricky, where it's all scripted, uh, he improvises and loves to improvise. And I'm happy to say that I have one moment on film where I improvise something that actually made Mel Brooks laugh. Um, 
uh, the, with the line was something like, uh, uh, well, it was, it was Dan's line just now. I had to say to Mel, who was playing um, Friar Tuckman, um, uh, who uh, practiced the uh, Brees in a little tent to one side, um, uh, I said to him, uh, thank you, Father. And he said, Rabbi. And that was the line. That was all it was. And I said, thank you, Father. And he said, Rabbi. And I said, whatever. And <laughs> my line. Well, we know you have to go, but thank you so much. Sir Patrick Stewart, this is a tremendous honor. I would love to. Daniel Stewart, nice to see you. Thank you so much for coming. A tremendous honor to meet you both. Ladies and gentlemen, please, a huge round of applause for Sir Patrick and Daniel Stewart. I've been Chris Hardwick. Thanks for coming out. We'll see you out on the floor. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast was brought to you by GoToMeeting. Meet easily with colleagues even when traveling or working remotely. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com and enter the promo code NERDIST. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.